Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by our special guest speaker. We're going to be talking about the wrath of God this morning. Da-da-da-dum, the wrath of God. Listen, just do this, go, just breathe. It's not, it's not what you think. See, we have this understanding that the wrath of God is this punitive force by God that is ready to strike us down anytime we make a mistake. And that's not what the wrath of God is. Watch this. God never initiates the wrath. We initiate the wrath. I'm going to prove that to you. So let's go to the book of Romans. And let's go to chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. And then let's go to Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. So we're going to read the big text in a little bit. But let's read Romans 2. Four through six, because I want to show you that some people, they get the day of wrath and the wrath of God confused. So Romans chapter two, verse five says this, Paul's writing to the Roman church, chapter two, verse five, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent, that means unrepentant heart, You are treasuring up yourself, wrath, say wrath, in the day of wrath, say day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each man according to his deeds. So there's a differentiation in this text between the day of wrath and the wrath of God. The day of wrath is what we call an eschatological event, that is an end time event where you're standing before God. I preached on it a few weeks ago, that's the judgment seat of Christ. If you're a believer or the great white throne judgment without mercy, if you're an unbeliever. So there's a day of wrath, but the church of Jesus Christ, if you're born again, is not gonna see that day, amen? But look what it says, it says, Treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. So the Bible is littered through phrases, the wrath of God through the entirety of the New Testament. And and I think we need to dive a little bit deeper into the text to see what he's really talking about. So let's go and backtrack to chapter 1, verse 18, where this phrase is used. Chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, just do this for me. Entertain me for a few moments. Take your hands like this and do this. That's suppressing the truth. This word suppress is an ancient term and had to do with the function of of a a seaboat captain that would intentionally steer the course of the ship. So what he's saying right here is that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress it. They, They intentionally push it down because that may be known of God, this is verse 19, as manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, 
his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. You know what this is saying right here? This is saying that there's no such thing as atheism. A fool says there is no God. Based upon this text right here, it says that everybody has this knowledge within them. But what they do is they suppress it. They push it down, pretending that God doesn't exist so they can live their life in their own will and in their own dysfunction. So Paul is opening up chapter 1 with this idea of the wrath of God. And he's about to explain exactly what it looks like. The wrath of God is not something that God does to us. It's something that we do to ourselves. So he's saying that we all have this truth, we all have this knowledge of who God is, but we suppress it. We intentionally push it down like God does not exist. And he's saying you can look around you at what has been made, you can even look at your own body, the intricacies of even your own flesh and your own organ system, and that should be enough to know that you have an intelligent designer. That's good news, amen? Amen. All right, let's keep going. Because although they knew God, they knew God, they knew God, but they did not glorify him as God. They knew God, but he was not the Lord of their life, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Say darkened, this is important. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Blaise Pascal, a French philosopher and mathematician, says this. He says that humanity, mankind, was made in the image of God, but we return the favor. We return the favor. Meaning, we've reduced God into something that we can understand and handle, and we have reversed the function of worship. Watch this. Therefore, God also... 24, therefore God also gave them over. Say, gave them over. When a phrase is repeated again and again and again in the text, you better pay attention because the author is trying to get your attention. Therefore God gave them over to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Who exchanged the truth of God for, watch this, he says, Veli, say Veli, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So this is the problem. We worship creation over the creator, but then he continues to define the problem. Watch this, verse 26. For this reason, God what? Gave them over. There it is, second word, second time it's used. For this reason, God gave them over to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the dual penalty of their error. Look, I got a sweat rack today. Praise God, amen. I'm prepared. Hallelujah. Right? Receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what did he do? Gave them over. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness. He mentions 17 sins in the flesh right here. But what does verse 18 say? It says the wrath of God is revealed. It's manifested. It's seen. So 
I'm going to take you to a bunch of texts here in a little bit, and then I'm going to teach, but I want you to see this. The Word of God is clear concerning this. Now go to Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I'll just start with verse 1 because it's so good. And he made you alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Watch this. Among whom also we all, say we all. Say we all. We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? Wrath. All of us, children of wrath. But yet, the text says we're all children of wrath, but I don't see anybody exploding right now in front of me with the judgment of God. I don't see anybody in front of me being dealt with by God right now punitively. So maybe the wrath of God is a little bit different. Let me take you to another scripture. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You guys are getting your Bible reading in this morning. Amen? Come on. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, let's look at verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36. This is the apostle John, and he says this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see him, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, you can put it up there. It's easy, but it says that God has not appointed us to wrath. So it's God's heart that we never experience the wrath of God. But what's interesting about this word, it's fascinating, is the Greek word for wrath. I'm going to get all the teenagers' attention at this point because I'm going to throw out a word. and You're going to be like, what did the preacher just say? It's orge, where we get the word orgy. Greek text, wrath is orge, where we get the word orgy. Now, if anyone needs to know what orgy is, will you go ahead and play that clip? I'm just joking. Some of y'all, listen, some of y'all were waiting to see it, and others are like, my God, the preacher's lost his mind. Can we laugh this morning? Is it cool? Can we laugh? All right, we can laugh. I don't have, hopefully I don't have to explain what it is, but the New Testament translates it as violent passion, sexual passion, but it has to do with and giving over to that act. It's, it's kind of like the word pornonea. Say pornonea. Pornonea is where we get the word immorality, but the root of it doesn't mean that. It means to sell. So the person caught up in immorality is selling themselves into bondage. They think they're buying into pleasure, but they're selling themselves into bondage. The wrath of God, is a, it's, a, it's, it's translated as a passionate, almost a violent word. And what's so interesting is when Paul is explaining it, he's dissecting it, he's using sexual examples throughout chapter 1 to define it. And he says, look, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven right now 
against every single person that worships creation over the creator. That's false worship. Watch this though. And if you keep reading, he goes into the individual act of homosexuality. He is introducing the wrath of God. He's saying it's revealed from heaven against all of us. He's indicting all of humanity in a broad scope. He's saying it's when you worship creation more than the creator. And then he goes into the individual sins of homosexuality. And let me just say this right here. I am sick and tired of preachers using this text to get condemn the people in the act of homosexuality. Listen, we are a non-affirming church. We believe that it is sin in the fullest form. But let me tell you something. I want this church to be filled with people with same-sex attractions. See, three people said yes. That's the problem. We make that look so different than your own dysfunction. But I'm going to prove to you that Paul is using that particular sin to indict you who's never committed the act. Uh-oh. Da-da-da-dum. The plot thickens. What's the preacher talking about? Has he lost his mind? No. I've studied my mind crazy. Listen, I, I, let me tell you something. When I was 25 years old, I had a dream one night. And in my dream, there was a faceless man walked to me in a field with a license plate about this big, and it said, Romans 1, I woke up. I took it to my pastor at the time. I said, look, I had this dream. I couldn't see the man's face, but it had Romans 1. He said, you need to, you need to devour that chapter, son. You need to devour it. You need to read it. You need to read it until you're literally like, like dreaming about it, until you're like muttering it all the time. You need to devour that text. I didn't get the revelation until seven years later. I probably read, I don't know, maybe even a thousand times. I don't know, seriously. Hundreds of times. And I've gone through it, I've gone through it, and I realized what Paul was doing is he's using the sin of homosexuality to indict you and me because he's using it as the best example that shows you what the wrath of God looks like in real time. Okay, let's talk about this. When, some, when someone says, why is homosexuality wrong, what are you going to tell them? You're going to tell them, well, the Bible says so, brother. Bless God, the Bible says so, it's wrong. Okay. The Bible says a lot is wrong. Can you understand and teach them the heart of God behind it? Amen. That it doesn't, it doesn't show the full expression of worth in a marital covenant because you can never reproduce the image of God through two men or through two women. Listen, when two people come together in covenant... In intercourse, there's, some, there's a seed that's produced. It's the imagio deo. It's the image of God. And listen, Genesis says, male and female created he them and called their name Adam. Right now, I'm half the image of God. You bring my bride up to the stage and she stands next to me. We're the fullness of God's image expressed. Not just me. But her. And let me just give you a tweet right here. This is why we believe in women in ministry at New Hope. Because if women are not preaching, if they're not leading worship, you're only seeing half the image of God worship God. Come on. So when you have two people, male and female, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and those two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. We have a culture that's trying to separate that right now. 
Two people coming together, producing a baby. That baby is the image of God. That, listen, that is the obedience to the original sevenfold mandate in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, tend, keep the garden. What is God wanting us to do? He's wanting to show his glory on the earth. When he says the glory of God shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. But why is Paul used this? Why is wrath translated as kind of a sexual term? And then he goes through and he says, we suppress the truth. The issue is we worship man. We worship our own image. And then he goes, well, let's talk about what this looks like as it pertains to you. And see, Many of us in here that maybe have never committed the sin of homosexuality as we know it defined as will read right through this and say, well, that's not talking to me. Yes, it is. So when someone asks you, why is it wrong? What are you going to tell them? What are you going to tell them? The Bible says so. Say, no, you're not going to experience the fullness of God's worth and relationship. Because listen, I don't care how same-sex attracted you are. God's got one person in mind of the opposite sex that can fill your every need because he knows what you need. And he can put every single fact of his divine nature inside of the other person. And he can put two people together and say, I know you've never experienced this, but try it. And let me show you how true love in the kingdom operates. But he uses that and he says, this is what I'm going to use to indict all of humanity. Because watch this, a man with a man. If I look at a man and I'm attracted to a man, that's the, my, the same biology as I have. That is, even though the facial characteristics, the hair color may be a little bit different, a man looks like a man just like a woman looks like a woman. That's why he says the problem is we worship creation over the creator. God doesn't want you to love someone that looks like you. So the problem is he's not picking on the homosexual. He's using it as the best example for what we all have done. What is that? In the last days, men shall be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. Your issue and my issue is we love the person in the mirror way too much. We don't know how to get over ourselves. So listen, the homosexual that loves the person that looks like them is the same as the narcissistic person filled with vanity that can't get over themselves. See, we're leveling playing field. Say, say he's leveling the playing field. We can't pick on him. We can't isolate it. We can't make it a unique sin. Let me tell you what Jesus would do if he came back for his church right now. He would stand in between the person caught in the act of homosexuality and an angry church. Read John chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 5 says we don't judge those that are outside the church. God does that. Why? Because they're not filled with the spirit. They don't know any better. We judge those that are in the church. Me and you, we hold each other accountable. This is where judgment has to happen because judgment first happens in the church of the living God. He uses it to indict all of humanity. And maybe, let me level the playing field a little bit more. 
Chances are the first sexual experience you had was with yourself. Uh-oh, moving on on that one. He uses it and he says, this is the problem. We love someone that looks exactly like us. So how does this relate to wrath? The wrath of God is this, is when, what did he use the phrase three times? He used, and God, what? Gave them over. Say it, say it loud. Say, God gave them over. So the wrath of God is when God gives you over to the thing you love more than him. I'm gonna say it again. The wrath of God is when God gives you over to the thing that you love more than him. This is addiction in real time. Come on, this is Romans 7 in real time. What I want to do, I don't do it. I do the very thing I hate to do. It is no longer I who do it, but sin dwelling in my flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing. I cried unto the Lord. And I said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of flesh? The problem with Romans 7 is the problem with the man that's not being governed by the Spirit. You can't find the Spirit one time when Paul starts his argument in Romans 7 starting at verse 15. But in chapter 8, you find Spirit 17 times. That's the answer for the flesh. But the wrath of God is when someone is loving themselves so much and they suppress the knowledge of God and they're choosing to disobey every moment of their life and God is beckoning, he's calling, he's putting up roadblocks, he's convicting, but then he says, look, if you want it, i got to turn you over to it. Listen, we're not judged because of our sin, we're judged by our sin. Come on, our pastor has taught us this. It's the sin that you love more than God is the sin that's judging you right now. I tell my guys all the time, they blame God. I lost my kids. I lost my car. I lost my wife. No, that's not God's fault. That's the wrath of God. Well, yeah, it is the wrath of God. You don't understand the wrath of God. He gave you over to that thing, and now you're dealing with the consequences of that. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Come on. Listen. What have we learned also here in this house? We get mad at the person that we deem that has the most power to change our situation. So we get mad at God all the time. Listen, that is the original lie within us. We blame God for everything that goes wrong. God, if you're so omnipotent, if you're so powerful, take me out of this situation. And God would scream back, I'm trying to, but you won't let me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm sending people to speak into your life. I'm setting up small groups at New Hope that deal with your issue. I'm sending preachers Sunday in and Sunday out, preaching a gospel of grace and of mercy, but you're refusing to accept the fullness of who I am. You want my love, but you don't want my holy. You want my cross and you want my blood and you want to be clean, but you don't want resurrection from your own life. That's the difference between cross and resurrection. The love of God brought him to the cross. The holiness of God, the spirit of holiness, Romans 1, 5, resurrected him from the grave. It's, it's no different for us. The holiness of God is what causes us to get up out of the bed of addiction. Come on. 
The holiness of God is what gets us out of the bed of pornography addiction. The holiness of God is what heals your marriage, but you have to lean into holy. Listen, proximity is not enough. Let me define that. Talk to Judas Iscariot about that. I know you've heard a lot of preachers say, proximity, brother. It's not enough. Talk to Judas about that. It's surrendering to holiness through proximity. It's surrendering to holiness through proximity. So Paul in Romans 1 is defining the wrath of God. He's saying, and God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He's using homosexuality as the best example for all of humanity because he's saying your issue is you love someone that looks exactly like you. Look in the mirror. And the fruit of that is what we call homosexuality. But what if we got the definition wrong? My God, we've allowed culture to define it. Well, we can talk about what homosexuality is. Paul says it's when you love your own image more than the image of God. One sex attracted. One sex moved. Listen, the devil gets so much blame for what your flesh is wanting you to do. We blame the devil for everything, brother, the devil. And I, and I get it. Well, he's not behind every bush. He was behind the first bush, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I get that. But your flesh, your flesh and what your flesh wants and you refusing to put it on the altar and stay there and allow holiness to deal with you. And we go around the mountain again and again and again, and we blame God. God, why am I still in the same dysfunction? Why am I going through this again and again? He's saying, because you're choosing not to get out of the wrath of God. All you have to do is surrender. All you have to do is throw up your hands and say, I need a higher way. I can't do this by myself. All you need is an alarm clock and a Bible to get up in the morning, drag your flesh out of the bed, and say, God, transform me by your spirit but we keep going through the same motions we go through religion we love religion when we're dealing with the wrath of God because we read our Bible we pray we go to church and we and we get addicted to ministry to make ourselves feel better and that's never gonna work if the motivation is not love then we're gonna have ministry without intimacy. Talk to the, talk, listen, talk to the church of Ephesus about that. For I have this against you. You have, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. You're laboring good, you're working good, you're doing all the facets of ministry. You're functioning amazing, but you left your first love. And Jesus says, if you don't return to the first works and repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what he's saying? He's saying the light of your influence in the community will be no more. And see, when we're dealing with the wrath of God through our own selfish decisions, we love to do religious exercises to make ourselves feel better about what's going on in our interior world. But what I found, hey, listen, Paul says this. He gives you the answer in Philippians 3. He says, and this one thing I do, say one thing. He doesn't say fast for 40 days. He doesn't say go to seminary. 
He says, this one thing I do, he says, forgetting what is behind me and pressing toward what is uh, ahead of me, that I might apprehend that which I have been apprehended by Christ Jesus. He's saying, if I can just surrender and forsake all and quit allowing my past to define me, I will be set free. I will be set free. Who wants to be set free this morning? Come on. Who, Who wants to be set free from yourself? Thou shalt have no other idols before me. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about you. We like to labor our idols. True idol is you. I tell my guys all the time, I'm like, if guys have come up to you with drugs in their hand, you used to think those were idols. Those are not idols. Those have no power. They have no life. They have no breath. The true idol is what your heart wants. Doesn't matter what's in front of you, don't matter what temptation is in front of you, don't matter what type of scenario is in front of you that's trying to get you to fall, if your heart is transformed and you don't want it, it doesn't matter what's in front of you. But if your heart is not transformed, then yes, you will think those are your idol, but no, your idol is what you want, which is yourself. Yourself. Our self is always going to be the issue, self-preservation. Say self-preservation. Jesus defines this in Matthew chapter 26. He's in the garden. Listen, crucifixion did, did not start on the cross. Let me say it again. Crucifixion of Jesus did not start on the cross. Crucifixion started in the garden. Bloodshed started in the garden. You know, you know what he was dealing with in the garden? He was dealing with himself in the garden. The closest that Jesus ever came to sinning, listen, beloved, was not in the wilderness fighting the devil. It was in the garden of Gethsemane, the wine, the oil press. And he's there before the Father, knowing what's ahead of him, knowing the cross that he's going to have to bear, knowing the pain he's going to feel in his body. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, you know what he's saying there? He's saying self-preservation is raising its head out of my soulish man and I'm looking what I'm going to have to do to save the world and I'm dealing with a little bit of self in this moment but the second part of his prayer, he cuts the head off that and he says, yet not what I will but what thou will. Self-preservation, self, 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 self. Jesus cuts off the head of self, and he says, okay. You know what it says? The angels of God came and ministered unto him, and he went to the cross, and he was victorious on the cross. What happened on the cross of Jesus Christ? This is what's fascinating. Listen, I know, I know Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. I studied it in seminary. But watch this. Was it really sinners in the hands of an angry God or was it God in the hands of angry sinners? Was it where Jesus enters into our own wrath, giving himself over to the consequences of sin and by giving himself over to what we deserved, he freed us. When Jesus entered into the own wrath, his own wrath, he said, I know you've given yourselves over to every sort of sinful behavior, and I know you're lost, 
But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself over to the consequences you deserve and I'm going to die for you and I'm going to resurrect from the dead so I can free you. This is the gospel. Listen, it was not... Come on, I, I know we're taught that the Father was pouring the wrath on the Son. No, listen, the Trinity cannot be divided. Oh, he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He was quoting Psalms 22. Read Psalms 22. Read the beginning, read the end, and the end, you know what he says? Oh, there you are, you've been with me this whole time. The Father never separated himself from the Son on the cross. I know I heard one, that's right. The, I'm going to say it again. The Father never separated himself on the cross because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that the Father was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Jesus entered into the wrath that we experience every day and he died faithfully before humanity and it wasn't just how he died on the cross it was the attitude he had while he was doing it well brother the cross saved us there was thousands tens of thousands of crucifixions in that day it was how he did it it was his heart towards humanity as he was spilling his blood for us see we the cross has been something that we just, we scoot on by, but we have to study it. We have to go back to it and see what Jesus did for us. Powerful moment on the cross. The Father and the Son and the Spirit were in communion because they knew their mission. Before the creation of the world, they were in this council. Nothing happens in the future that God doesn't know about. I'm not an open theist. Nothing happens. He's outside of time. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in this divine council, Psalms 2. And they're like, somebody's going to have to die. And Jesus said, I'll die for that. And Holy Spirit said, and if you die for that, I'll feel that. I'll feel that. It's the love of God and knowing what he did for us. It's love that saves us and holy that keeps us free love will meet you at the altar listen you don't well i gotta give up this 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 no you do not have to give it up you come down here allow the holy spirit to touch you and god will deal with your issue you just keep posturing your heart right before him and you keep showing up you keep showing up come on you keep showing up you keep showing up in this house. You keep showing up on Wednesday night in this house. You keep showing up in the morning before God. I know when I get out of the presence of God, things go really wrong in my life. <laughs> I say crazy things to my spouse. I say crazy things to my kids. And it's all about our heart with Jesus. All of it. All right. I'm calm. I'm calm. Calm it down. Come in. All right, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. All right, let's go to one more scripture, and then we will tie a bow on this. Cool? Are y'all getting this? Yes. All right, Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 5, verses 9. Romans chapter 5. 
Verse 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Actually, let's look at verse 8. I love this. Actually, let's look at verse 6. <laughs> we'll go all the way back to <laughs> all right, Romans 5, 6. I told you I would get in your Bible reading this morning. For when we, were still without, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Without strength. Nothing you did. Nothing you did to deserve it. Nothing you did to earn it. No labor. No reward for good works. You without strength, in due time Christ died for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Watch this. Jesus says, I, no man takes my life from me, but I give it away on my own accord. Or I give myself away and give myself over to the wrath of humanity to redeem them from it. So watch this. In Romans 5, 9, much more than, say much more. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be saved from wrath through him. How does that happen? When your flesh, your soul, your will wants to do the thing that you love to do, I call them the pet sins. You just pet. You hold on to them. You pet them. You don't want to give them up, you know? It's like the little miniature chihuahua. You just pet, but then it bites you. That's your pet sin constantly. You don't want to give it up, right? In that moment where you don't want to give it up, you don't want to be into God. And I know all of you guys across this auditorium, you know what your issue is. You know it's between you and God, the thing that you've gone to the altar 37 times over the past four months over. This, okay. The thing that you pray to God about more than anything else. You know what God calls that? He calls that a strange incense. You're like, gosh, this prayer stinks. He doesn't read the Bible. Strange incense. God's like, man, it's the same fleshy prayer all the time. You ask me to deliver you from something I already have but you got to just walk out of it through my grace and quit looking at yourself and loving yourself more than me. Come on. Yeah. Good preaching today. Listen, I, I tell my sons all the time, I'm almost done. I know I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going I'm to end. And, and, and the, I said, bro, listen, I'm not saying you don't love God. You love God. But in the moment you did that, you just loved yourself a little bit more. Do you want to know where most of us live our life? Watch this. Hear what I'm saying. We have too much of sin in our life to enjoy God, but too much of God in our life to enjoy sin. Too much of sin in our life to enjoy God. You can't even enjoy him because you know what he expects. And you got conviction and you're like, you're, you're, God, it's like, I'm doing it, Lord, I want to be free. You can't even enjoy God because what you're doing. But then you can't even like enjoy sin because you have God. You're stuck, stuck like Chuck, <laughs> right here. And you're like, ah, oh. and God's like, I want to free you from this. And listen, this, this is the thing. It might take you a little bit because the wrath of God is you keep giving over to that thing and watch happens. Eventually something really cataclysmic or crisis happens and you're forced to change. And I don't want to see that. 
Man, I dealt with it. I've dealt with that a few times in my life. Talk to my parents who had to bail me out, okay? <laughs> I've dealt with that. You don't want that to happen. Keep doing stupid things, being given over to this. But Romans 5 verse 9 says, we are saved from wrath through him. How? I'm setting our senior pastor up for next week. Say hallelujah. hallelujah. Talked to him last night. Talked to him this morning. We're all fired up. He's telling me what he's preaching on. I told him what I'm preaching on. And then it hit me. I'm like, oh my gosh, our sermons are going to come perfectly together, connected. And I realized that what he's preaching on next week is an answer for this right here. Remember what it says, we are saved from wrath through him. Remember holiness causes Jesus to resurrect. He didn't just resurrect out of the grave. He ascended, watch this. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Oh, this is so powerful. <laughs> Can you tell I love the word of God? You love that? Listen, Jesus didn't just ascend to the right hand of the Father without you. Watch this. Romans 8 says this. There is therefore now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It says he came in the likeness of, listen, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Watch this. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Key is he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Watch this. When he resurrected from the dead, he resurrected sinful flesh, redeemed it. And now watch this. Seated at the right hand of the Father, seated on the mercy seat, is your redeemed sinful flesh in union with Jesus. Come on. Your and my redeemed sinful flesh that causes us to experience the wrath of God day in and day out is seated at the right hand of the Father, but it's on top of mercy. Resurrected flesh is seated on top of mercy. You're joined with him. You have an intercessor. You have an advocate before the Father. And if we can get that in our spirit, and it doesn't become just a theory, but it becomes a reality, and we know we can lean into that when we're tempted. We can lean into that when we're weak. We understand, I know I'm struggling with this thing called flesh, and this will, this soulish man, but Jesus, you're at the right hand of the Father, and I'm with you. Ephesians 2, last scripture. Everyone go ahead and stand up. Ephesians 2. Remember, I, I, I opened up with this text. Watch this. Watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Listen closely. And what you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all, once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. Don't, don't, listen, don't tune me out. Among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's a problem. Keep reading. But God, who is rich in mercy, come on, because of his great love of which he loved us, watch this. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, 
and raised us up together, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're seated on mercy. The problem is we're all children of wrath. We all make mistakes. You'll probably make a mistake in 15 minutes. But know that your mistakes have been swallowed up by a resurrected Christ. And he gave humanity an upgrade when he resurrected from the dead. Do you know it says in Jesus came a little bit lower than the Angelos? Hebrews text is Elohim. He came a little bit lower than Elohim. And then when, when, when Adam fell in the garden, then, then the enemy came and we had to literally, we were in surrender to the prince of the power of the air. Jesus got that back in the wilderness. And then when he resurrected from the dead in Matthew 28, he says, all power and all authority, not just on earth, but in heaven has been given unto me. And guess who he gave authority to? You. True authority is authority that's given away. It's not hoarded. It's not dominating, but it's authority that's given away. Jesus gave you his authority, and now you're joined with him at the right hand of the Father. He gave you an upgrade, amen? That's good news, amen? Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.